And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And somebody else who thinks it's the greatest nation on God's green earth is Chris Matthews, who for 20 years was the uh, host, the proprietor of Hardball on MSNBC. He is uh, the author of many books, uh, some of them the ones that I've read, actually. They're all good, I'm sure, but the ones that I've read and that are truly outstanding have to do with Ronald Reagan and his partnership with Tip O'Neill, who uh, once upon a time was the boss of Chris Matthews. He worked in the congressional office of Tip O'Neill, the one-time Speaker of the House. He has also been the author of uh, books about John Kennedy and Richard Nixon. And part of the friendship and rivalry between these two young guys who came to Congress at the same time. And Chris, if I could, I want to ask you uh, a question that, that came to me this morning when I was looking forward to to talking to you this afternoon, is that uh, uh, Nixon and Kennedy, when they were running against each other in 1960, they were two young guns. They were both young men. Nixon was 47. Kennedy was 43. Right now we have two oldest men, the two oldest serious candidates for president ever, one of whom is 77, the other of whom is 81. Uh, do you see any real similarities between that choice that we had in 1960, which set records, by the way, for voter turnout between Richard Nixon and John Kennedy and the looming choice between Donald Trump and Joe Biden? God, I don't think there's a, a comparison. I mean, in terms of acuity, brain power, uh, it's very hard to match Nixon. And Jack Kennedy did so. Uh, people that talked about how he was better looking and all that, and that won him on television. Well, I think that's a little simple-minded. If you go back, and anybody can do this on YouTube, just go back and on Google. Just go back and watch the opening uh, statements by Kennedy in the first debate with Nixon. And just watch it. They didn't have teleprompter. They didn't have anything on notes. They weren't allowed to have notes. His first eight minutes won in the election. He said, "We're this, this debate's about domestic policy, but let's not forget the, the cold world uh, dimensions of this and what it matters to the world. And he, his, his, his articulation was so strong. I don't think either of these guys today are able to do that. And Nixon, of course, has proved like in the Bohemian Grove and places like that he's going to speak. Uh, where he's been able to even the Kennedy people were overwhelmed by Nixon's ability to make a statement to the American people and his connection as Ted Sorensen, who was the brilliant speechwriter for Jack Kennedy, said Nixon could connect with the American nervous system like nobody on earth. And I know Biden and, or Trump is trying to do that and he can do it and he may be able to win again. But uh, I think that the intelligence that Nixon put into uh, the politics was serious business and Kennedy's uh, his uh, strategic ability. The, as I say to people, how many people at 8 o'clock in the morning, the morning after winning the Democratic nomination for president, at 8 o'clock in the morning, he all by himself got on the telephone and called up Lyndon Johnson in the same hotel, the Biltmore in, in L.A., and offered him the vice presidency. In that one stroke, he got the two Carolinas. He got Georgia, Arkansas, Louisiana, uh, Texas. 
He did all that in one morning. It was a strike of genius, and it made him president. And I think if you look at the at the history of Jack Kennedy, uh, it, it goes back to a lot of stages where he called Mrs. Uh, Mrs. King, Martin Luther King's wife, Coretta, when he, her husband was put into jail in, 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 in Georgia. And he made that connection with the black community that just swept past Nixon, who had been working with the black community as a member of the NAACP, as a friend of Martin Luther King's, a friend of Whitney Young's, especially of the Urban League. And Kennedy just did one sweep was able to bring the black vote together with him. So I look at people of strategic minds. I don't think Biden or Trump are able to do that kind of thing uh, in the sweep of history. Well, one of the things that I've been thinking about, and I think every American has, is this is a very disappointing choice this year. Nobody's particularly enthusiastic about um, President Biden. I know there are um, many people... um, who are enthusiastic about President Trump, but this is a a tough choice, and it seems to me that it raises some questions about the system that we have of campaigning for president and choosing nominees. Do you believe, with your knowledge and your life experience living American history, that maybe we should take a little bit of a few steps back and uh, deal less with big, sweeping primary campaigns all across the country and go back to empowering those legendary guys in a smoke-filled room who knew the candidates and could pick somebody who might actually be a great president. God, it's a tough call because there were really moments in history which are fairly recent. I mean, when Harry Truman was made the vice presidential nominee in 1944, with the party knowing that Roosevelt was dying uh, more so than he knew he was dying, uh, they were able to make a, a, the right choice rather than Henry Wallace, somebody on the far, far left. Uh, they were able to save the presidency. Uh, the, the, the people like Harry Truman himself who would go to Eisenhower and say, we want you to, to replace me in 1948 with all the – even the Roosevelt kids were with him. Uh, and, and, and I think Eisenhower turned it down because he's a Republican, but – these kind of decisions in the back room, even as recently as a couple of years ago when we had Bob Strauss, as you know, it could engineer the removal of Don Regan as the president's uh, chief of staff. You know, these things were done with the help of Nancy Reagan. There were forces between the voter and the president. So it wasn't just a voter voting in primaries, as you say. But there was really kind of a construct out there where you could have Barry Goldwater and, and Hugh Scott going to, to Nixon and say, you got to leave. If they get the, they've got the tapes. The tapes show you were participating, if not leading the cover-up. You have to go. Where is that? You're right, Michael. Where is that middle ground between the voter and the construction of the actual president, presidential leadership? There's nobody in between to, to, to broker it. And I think we do need some brokering. I mean, usually we had like the establishment was backing either Lyndon Johnson or uh, – or uh, Adlai Stevenson in 60, but Kennedy came along and won the primary. So there's a conflict between, uh, a successful conflict between the primary fight and, and the old order. And then, of course, Mondale was able to win with the old order in, in 84. And so you've had that. Or Jimmy Carter broke through the old order. So maybe it's healthier to get to your point that there has to be a healthy conflict between the old order, the, the established power uh, brokering, and somebody coming in to challenge it. So at least on the way to getting the job, it's getting to, it's getting proven to be the right answer. And then there's, if the young maverick like uh, Barack Obama is able to beat Hillary Clinton, it shows he's got something. 
Uh, you know what I mean? So there is a fight that goes on before we get to the ultimate choice of who our leader is. It might work. And, and Chris Matthews, right, right now, one person who at one point was the uh, choice of uh, a, a lot of people uh, for president of the United States uh, was Rudy Giuliani. Uh, right now, uh, it's kind of hard to believe that once upon a time he was America's mayor and seriously considered a presidential candidate. What do you think has been the essence in the collapse of his career? Uh, we will talk about that and more with Chris Matthews uh, for 20 years, the uh, proprietor of Hardball uh, on MSNBC, the author most recently of This Country, his love letter to the United States of America. Uh, we will be right back with uh, Chris Matthews uh, on the shape of politics and uh, the likely outcome of uh, this upcoming and, and to many people worrisome election. Uh, will it be decided in a courtroom or will it be decided at the uh, ballot box? We will be right back with Chris Matthews. Medved. In my opinion, he's the most powerful man in the world. This is the Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved Show, joined by Chris Matthews, uh, for many years one of the top-rated hosts on cable television with his hardball show. Uh, he's a former aide to Tip O'Neill, who was a great speaker of the House, who ended up, uh, despite the fact that he was a Democrat from Massachusetts, working closely with a Republican from California named Reagan. And in fact, Chris Matthews has written a book about that. Uh, Chris, we were talking before about Rudy Giuliani, and uh, today he's announced that he's declaring bankruptcy because he owes about $500 million, and he has uh, assets of about $10 million. Not looking so good and so happy for Rudy Giuliani. Once upon a time, everybody admired him. He had changed New York City for the better. He was one of our great national leaders who rallied the country after September 11th. What happened? Well, I think there's a couple things in human decline. I mean, he really was the guy on the street corner in 9-11 in the days just thereafter where he was keeping us all calm. He was telling us what's the latest word on anthrax and he's bringing us up to date. He was like the classic uh, mayor or, or police chief standing on the curb when there's a five o'clock, a five alarm fire. He is the classic big city mayor. Uh, and then we, we had our differences. He was, uh, again, a big fight with him, over, a fight over the uh, the Wilding incident when he was telling the thing to me in my interview with him, uh, there should be consideration of capital punishment here. And, of course, he tried to deny ever saying it. But I did look up to him, and I always liked him. I think booze, just to be blunt about it, I think he's been drinking a lot. I mean, I, you can see it. I'm letting his, the hair stain uh, come down over his face. Uh, he just the, – the erratic, horrible behavior of election night where he went to the president and tried to encourage him in all this behavior. And uh, I, 
I, I don't know what it is. Sometimes you just get to be too big of a big shot, if you will, and you think you can talk about these two election workers as if they're below you in the food chain or something, and you talk about people in ways you should never talk about them, objectifying them. And, and I think he, um, he's gonna this this civil suit is frightening. I mean, nobody is ever going <laughs> to in his lifetime is going to make that kind of money. I, no. He's always going to be below water, always below water. If he's he's going to be like OJ down in Florida somewhere. You know, worrying about the Golden family, the Goldman family. I mean, I think this judge is going to pursue him, too, and get every nickel he gets out of if he goes into broadcasting from him. Okay. Right now, uh, you you have written books about John Kennedy and Richard Nixon and uh, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan and politicians that we look back on as people of real stature and real impact have uh, worthy of admiration in many cases. Uh, do you see any political leaders out there today who it is likely people will look back on, say, 20, 50 years from now with admiration? Well, they're, they're seedlings. Uh, I, I, they, they look good when I meet them, like Whitmer, the governor of, uh, of, of Michigan. I, I, I think she's really got something. And I mean, just because I talked to her and you can talk to her as a person. Um, I, I think there's a, on the left, I can think of Sherrod Brown, but he's on the left, clearly, and he might survive this election. Uh, it's going to be tough. Um, I like, I like Josh Shapiro. I think Josh Shapiro, the governor of Pennsylvania, is very interesting. Very interesting. I mean, he has shown the development of Pennsylvania on, on sectarian lines. We've had governors who are Jewish, and, and, and Arlen Specter was Jewish, and Eddie Rendell, of course, and Milton Schaap. But they like Milton Schaap changed his name from Shapiro, and Eddie Rendell, you never know what he was, and Arlen the same way. But he's coming out. He's religious. He's observant, uh, Josh Shapiro is. I've known the guy since he was a, a county commissioner in Montgomery County. Uh, he's a friend of my brother's in, in, in the old days, and I, uh, a bipartisan brother. And I, and I, I, think, he's got, I think he's going somewhere. Josh Shapiro, I would put him up there, and I think he. What about Nikki Haley? I think that she is very attractive as a candidate. She is very good on the stage. I think she's very good at expressing herself and timing. Her timing is very good, like Jack Germont. She knows when to go to strike and and to pull back. I do think she's hedging her bets for vice president. I, I think she is, and it could be her or someone else. But I still think she's not quilling. He's not going to war with with President Trump like uh, like Chris Christie is, for example. Chris Christie is it's all out. There's never going to be a, a friendship there. But I think she still be careful. I think she knows that the party is still with Trump. And uh, yes, uh, by the way, we had Chris Christie on the show, and I asked him if he'd accept the nomination as vice president to run with President Trump. And uh, I'm not sure his entire answer is printable. Uh, he, he the answer was yeah, a, he has made his, emphatic no. He, he has made his decision. Um, he has he has he has dealt with Trump close up, and I guess it wasn't it wasn't a great relationship. <laughs> no. Speaking of great relationships, um, can you remember a candidate for president more obnoxious than Vivek Ramaswamy? No, and I and I, my wife is always nice because she's very she's the former Democratic Party chair of Maryland, and she's very partisan. And I 
And I'm a little more private on those things. I'm a little more difficult to deal with when I'm thinking of watching myself. I tell you, I don't get them. There's finger points in the air, pointing in the air with the fingers all the time. What is the fingers in the air all about? What is that? I, is that for young people? Who, who is he demonstrating that for? The, the, the point of the, when they talked about him being, are you going to vote for Trump even if he has as, as a conviction? And he, he points his fingers in the air and he's, I'm doing it again. I mean, what what is this? But obnoxious is the good word for it. And I look at, I mean, here's a good comparison. Nikki Haley is actually running for something. She's hoping that she might just be able to uh, upset Trump in New Hampshire. I think she'd like to see Chris Christie get out of that contest and maybe have a chance of knocking off Trump and doing a really something that starts the ball rolling. But what's Vivek doing? He's clowning it. He's just clowning there, confusing the whole show with what he's doing. I guess he has enough money to get in there every time. And I, I think it's awful to have somebody in the group that's not really running for office and somebody who really is running for office. And that's why I root for uh, every time I've rooted for her, because I want her to do something that distinguishes this campaign in the Republican side. So there is a campaign. Amen. Um, last last question. Um, if if you had to guess 30 seconds, who's standing up there on the Capitol steps taking the oath of office on January 20th uh, of 2025? Four. Yeah. Well, right now in the polls, I'd say Trump. In the polls, he's up significantly. I think he'll be significantly up again next month. But sometime the roll will stop, but he's growing. I think this thing with Colorado is helping him a lot. I think in Pennsylvania, apart from Chicago, or Chicago P- P- Pittsburgh and Philly and, and State College up in Center County, I think the state's rolling in his direction. I'm in the rural areas. I think the non-college people are going toward him. I think the deplorables line still has power. I think the uh, opposition and, and antagonism toward the coastal elites is real. So I think he has a good shot of winning. I don't know what's going to happen next year because I think the courts will decide some of the vote. Well, we will all really be a, looking a forward and, and glad to get you glad to get in the lane. Snow is glistening. And one of the year end uh, traditions that I think is a tradition worth honoring is the selection of lie of the year, uh, which is made by the good people at PolitiFact. Uh, Katie Sanders is the editor-in-chief of PolitiFact at the Pointer Institute for Media Studies. Uh, And uh, Katie oversees PolitiFact's nonprofit fact-checking newsroom and its Pulitzer Prize-winning website. And she also teaches fact-checking techniques uh, that... uh, can uh, regularly enrich the work of journalists, social media influencers, and students from around the world. Okay, Katie, uh, uh, you've had some past winners who have generated a lot of controversy where people say, well, that's not really a lie. But what you're talking about this time is not one lie. It's a whole campaign of conspiracy theories. Okay, with a uh, drum roll, please. Who is the uh, liar of the year? Well, our 2023 lie of the year goes to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for false statements he's made as he's running for president. Well, congratulations to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. What are the best examples of some of the false statements that he's made? 
You know, I think that's what's so striking about this year's selection is that I feel like I could go on and on. Um, we went back and listened to a lot of the interviews he's given this year, particularly on podcasts that are long form. And he's really buckled down on some uh, a number of views that have been disproven um, for many years. So I think first and foremost is the claim that he believes vaccines uh, can cause autism. And this has been debunked um, for two decades, just about. Um, he wrote a big article in 2005 in Rolling Stone and Salon that ended up being retracted and really disavowed by scientific community. So um, he's still holding on. He still says, show me the proof and I'll change my mind. Uh, but he's been shown the proof and he apparently has not changed his mind. He also repeats a lot of claims. And one of those that we hear in Oh, I can't say every interview because I'm a fact checker, but in many interviews, he talks about vaccines for children not being tested, not being tested in pre-licensing studies and things that sound very official. Um, when we talk to um, medical professionals and people who know vaccine development very well, they say actually vaccines are among the most tested um, medicines out there. Uh, they're more tested and held to higher standards than um, a lot of drugs because of the consequences of being injected with something. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, again, and let's make it clear, we're not now talking about the controversy surrounding uh, vaccinations for COVID-19. We're talking about very well-established vaccinations, which have been uh, increasingly rejected by American parents. There was a piece today about mm. Idaho where they have a soaring rate of measles and chicken pox and mumps and childhood diseases that uh, kids are supposed to get vaccinated for. But uh, there are now opt-out provisions and uh, yeah. at polio, for instance. By the polio vaccine actually does work. Uh, and uh, maybe we can give people a flavor. This is a, a com composite that I believe you guys put together. Some of R -K RFK Jr.'s lies from uh, 2023. Uh, listen. I have never told any, I have never told the public avoid vaccination. I've never been to any vaccine. COVID-19 is targeted to attack uh, Caucasians and uh, black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and, uh, and Chinese. We are developing ethnic bioweapons. That's where all those labs in the Ukraine are about. They're collecting Russian DNA. Okay, uh, that's uh, just a, a little bit of a, a sampler. Why Why do you think so many people believe that? And I, I just wanted to mention to you, I don't know if you've seen yet, Katie, there's a brand new Quinnipiac poll uh, for a presidential race. And if, if uh, Robert Kennedy is in the presidential race, an independent candidate against Trump and Biden, he gets 22 percent, which makes it very close to a three-way tie. This This guy could actually carry some states. He could actually be competitive so, for yeah. president of the United States, right? Well, I think that's really what powered our selection is not necessarily how he's polling, but just the consequence of it all. He has been um, repeating these statements, including the statement we rated pants on fire that you played about COVID-19 being ethnically targeted and saying 
and just insisting he's right all year long in various settings. And um, like you said about the example in Idaho, this movement does have consequences, this movement that he's had a large role in inspiring uh, against vaccines. And, you know, he's made a point to say he's, quote, never been uh, anti-vax, that that is something that is assigned to him wrongly, that he just wants testing. And I think that as we can go over, that's very disingenuous. But in terms of why people are believing what he says, even um, I'll, I'll use, I'll stay on the example of him talking about COVID-19 affecting um, Caucasians and black people more severely than um, Jewish people and Chinese people. He was asked about that again uh, last week on CNN. And, you know, he said, I wish I hadn't said them because he acknowledged it sounded disturbing and anti-Semitic. But, you know, what I said was true. And he went on to use some very scientific <laughs> terms like fur and cleave and ACE2 receptor. And he, you know, was talking about the study. And you just have to keep in mind that he has a lot of credibility with his family's name. Um, a lot of people know him as an environmentalist and activist in his own right. And he just has this um, commitment to repeating his assertion very authoritatively. And he uses this data or the appearance of data. And so it looks like he knows what he's talking about. And often, he's you know, you know what else, so Katie, fast, you blow past it. What 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 it seems to me contributes to that is he has that vocal problem, the problem with his voice he's, where he's struggling to get the words and the sentences out. And that, I I think, makes people assume that it's sincere and more reliable. Uh, but a, a question, has he responded? Has he offered his thanks for winning this prestigious award? No, we had really hoped he would respond, but we um, tried to reach out to his campaign. We did reach out to his campaign um, and have not heard back. And so, um, you know, I felt by the end of our research that I, I could anticipate what he would say to some of these points. And so we worked that in as faithfully as we could. But I have not seen a response yet. And uh, any runners-up that you uh, would like to mention for lie of the year? Well, um, without revealing our editor's ballot, I'd like to talk about what our readers selected because they did go a different direction. Um, by a slim majority, 22% of uh, votes cast, we had about 1,100 votes cast, um, they chose Donald Trump's claim that is false that they are trying to make it illegal to question the results of a bad election. And I do respect the reader's choice. Um, this was a, str a strong contender because it wasn't just a single statement, but it really was emblematic of Trump's dismissal of the indictments against him over his actions leading up to and after Jan 6. And um, Trump has been successful in saying that these prosecutions are um, politically motivated and really about his, op his opinion, just asking questions, when really they're about his actions to subvert the election. But he has um, skillfully changed the rhetoric around that. Well, they call it the big lie. Um, the information about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and his uh, winner for the lie of the year, his campaign of conspiracy theories, says PolitiFact. 
Uh, you can check it out. It's linked at michaelmedved.com. Coming up, and it's no lie, uh, one of the best movies of 2023 released on Christmas Day coming up. We'll get to that and to Leave the World Behind, which is streaming right now on Netflix. Coming up on The Medved Show. And on The Michael Medved Show, uh, Christmas is one of those big days, not, not just for shopping, not just for family feasts, uh, not just for uh, for a lot of people going to services the night before or on Christmas afternoon, whenever. It's also a big day for movies. And one of the uh, best movies of the year, and I am just in the process of solidifying my 10 best of the year, but Boys in the Boat is definitely among them. And uh, it is officially released on Christmas Day, but I believe they're opening it early so that uh, people can get a look at the film. It's based on a best-selling book about an amazing story and the whole history of sports, which was in 1936, the uh, University of Washington crew team, the rowing team, uh, the eight guys who originally were part of the junior varsity at the University of Washington, had just an unbelievable string of successes. And this was written about in a, uh, uh, a very stirring nonfiction book. And the author of that book has now co-written a movie which is directed by George Clooney. And he's shown in the past that he's a very skilled director, even though he doesn't uh, appear in this movie. Uh, the part that he might have played as the part of the coach for the University of Washington, the Huskies and their crew team, is played by uh, Joe Etherton, uh, Edgerton, pardon me, and uh, does a fabulous job, as does everyone in the cast. And basically, you get to know a little bit all of the different people who are the boys in the boat, the historic figure who helped design the boats that were so successful for the University of Washington. And uh, even though this was not filmed in Seattle, uh, they do a fabulous job of recreating Seattle at the height of the Depression in the 1930s, where they show the Hooverville, the shantytown that grew up in what today is Soto. Today there are big stadiums there. There's some economic activity. There used to be just uh, shanties where people would live. And one of those uh, people, a guy named Joe Rance, became famous as one of the leaders of this crew team. Uh, the uh, sound of the movie, which, by the way, features a, a breakout performance for a wonderful young star named Hadley Robinson, who plays the love interest of one of the oarsmen in the crew team. Uh, she is radiant and wonderful, and the film leaves you feeling great. Listen. Eight-man crew is the most difficult team sport in the world. The average human body is just not meant for such things. Just not capable of such things. But average, not going to get a seat on my boat. The starting gun is up. Oars to front stops. Ready? Roll! As one! The Washington boat has taken the lead. Washington has done it! The work we all did together, that boat, the boys, and saw I got. 
Okay, the the film is uh, so takes some liberties with the historic record. Uh, the Adolf Hitler who appears in the film uh, is much better looking and more wholesome looking than the real Hitler, but he still doesn't respond well to the idea of the Berlin Olympics uh, giving way to an American team. One of the very few things you can say against this film is, first of all, it's it's very old-fashioned. And if people love old-fashioned, inspiring sports movies, you're definitely going to love this. It's gorgeously shot, brilliantly edited, extremely well-acted. But you know what? There are no surprises because, spoiler alert, I mean, you kind of know what happened because the young people uh, became world-famous for uh, their performance at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. By the way, a, a nice little uh, cameo by an actor who's very uh, convincing as Jesse Owens, who was another star of the Olympics. It's rated PG-13 uh, because of some harsh experiences that some of the, the athletes endure. Um, but uh, it's four stars for the boys in the boat. And I would be surprised if anyone can see it without being, at least to some extent, enraptured. And uh, the view of uh, Seattle in the 30s, even though they didn't shoot it anywhere near Seattle, except mostly in England, uh, is, is extremely uh, appealing and convincing. Meanwhile... Uh, another very different sort of movie is uh, a movie that's streaming on Netflix right now. And it's a, a movie about the end of the world. And one of the interesting things, oh, well, yes, and it's a very, very peculiar choice for holiday programming because basically Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke play a very stylish couple who live in a stylish neighborhood in Brooklyn. And they decide they're going to take a weekend off in the springtime and go up to a rural part of Long Island. And when they get there, weird things start happening. And uh, it's extremely creepy and compelling. They have two children uh, who have their own struggles. But the real problem for them is what happens when your cell phones don't work, where there are no phones that work, where TV isn't received, where all of those things we depend on are pulled away from you. Uh, then the, uh, they also meet a mysterious stranger who claims to own the house that they have rented. He's played by Mahershala Ali, who is an Oscar winner. Uh, you may remember him from the Green Book. And uh, Mahershal Ali is there. And uh, there's also, uh, aside from Ethan Hawke and Julia Roberts, Kevin Bacon playing a survivalist who has his own plan for coping with the breakdown of civilization all around them. The movie is called Leave the World Behind. Listen. There's something wrong with the TV. It's all messed up. I wonder what that means. What could it mean? It could be over in a couple of hours. You know something. I'm sure this will turn out to be a big nothing. We'll look back on this one day and laugh, I guarantee you. We shouldn't speculate. Haven't you been picking up on what's going on out there? I don't want to panic over nothing. I don't think this is nothing. We're in this together until things get back to normal. There is no going back to normal. We're going to be okay, right? Yeah. 
Okay, the first two-thirds of the film is uh, compelling and creepy. I've never seen a film to before make big herds of deer look scary. Uh, this film succeeds in doing that. What it doesn't succeed in doing is giving you a big reveal at the end about what you've just seen, about what is happening here. I guess you could say it is to some extent a message movie. Uh, it's directed and written by a talented young director named Sam S. Mail. Uh, but it's produced, the co-producers are uh, Barack and Michelle Obama. Yeah, those people. And uh, I, the film may have a message about how we are so spoiled because we depend so much on all our modern conveniences for our coffee, for our meals, for going to sleep at night, uh, for communicating. And uh, the the end of the film is uh, particularly particularly queasy leaving because there's no real connecting the various dots that have been left in the course of the movie. It is rated R. Uh, there are some scenes of uh, youthful obsessions with sexuality for one of the children and, uh, and, and some references to uh, pain and uh, suffering and uh, fear. Uh, that give it an R rating. It is streaming on uh, Netflix. And uh, meanwhile, uh, uh, it's uh, uh, Jeremy's note, and I think he's completely right. It's good, but not fun, not funny, and not for Follett families. Uh, they picked the wrong holiday uh, for release. Maybe Halloween uh, might might wor have worked better. Meanwhile, our holiday skip special, we are offering 20% off for Substack subscriptions. That means monthly or annually. That's now because of the sale only $4 per month. You can subscribe today at michaelmedved.substack.com. And coming up, we're going to be doing on Substack the hot top holiday movies. Uh, posted over the weekend. Plus, coming up, my 10 best movies of the year, which will include Boys in the Boat. Uh, meanwhile, wishing everybody a uh, joyous time with family and friends and uh, what to, we can do, what we can do to express gratitude for life in this greatest nation on God's green earth. <laughs>